In 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 9. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that, we're all, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning. If that passage was... Difficult to read and to hear this morning. Imagine trying to preach it. Uh, wild, wild passage we have in front of us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you've got a Bible, open there, and we'll, uh, we'll get to the sermon. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Chad Kinser. I serve as one of our pastors uh, in our downtown congregation, anchored there. But I, my role is teaching pastor, which means I get to teach and preach both downtown and then serve the other congregations uh, of our church um, as, as I'm able to. So I get to be here. It's been a while since I've been out here to Shawnee, and I've been looking forward to getting back out here for a while. And then when I realized I'd be getting back out here on a sermon on sex, I thought, you know, that's just no better way to re-engage our relationship than just show up and, and talk about that. So, hey, we're going to have a lot of fun today. Um, we're also going to talk about some really serious matters that, that f- should form and shape us. Uh, I see some teenagers in the room and you're sitting with your families, you might have some good conversations on the way home as we talk about the role of sex within marriage, and you might not wanna talk about it at all. You might just wanna look out the windshield and just just try to get home and then get back to your room and do things that that are not that, right? Talk about not that. So uh, anyway, uh, we're gonna have uh, a moment around God's word where he'll form us today. Um, And so this conversation may come to you as one that you're looking forward to and speak directly to issues that you've got questions about. It may be answering questions you don't have all the same God will form us as his people, amen? If you would please pray for me, I'll pray for you, and then we'll jump in and get to work. Father, we come to your word today, and we admit that we don't have it figured out. We admit that we need help. We admit that we're not as we ought to be. And I thank you, God, that even in all of those confessions and all those ways we admit our lack before you, that you don't run away from us, you don't stiff arm us because of those things. You actually move toward us in your son, Jesus, and by your word today. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd help us to understand what you're trying to teach us today. Would you form us in the places of sex and marriage and singleness? Would you help us understand the places in life that we are and how we can steward our lives back to you in a way that would be glorifying and edifying in the world for your glory and for our good. 
And so God, please help us here today. We're traveling upstream in places that many of us would, would just assume not go to, but your word takes us there. And so we trust your spirit to guide us and to teach us all that we need to know. And we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen, amen. Well, I, I just turned 39 a few weeks ago. And so kind of in this weird spot in life where it's like you can't really be in your 30s anymore, but you're not yet in your 40s. You're just sort of sitting there at 39, you know? Um, but I can't speak, if you're older than me in the room, I can't speak for you. You have maybe a different experience. But I know for me, in my life growing up in the church, in these 39 years, um, not always in the church, but since I've been a Christian, that sex has been a topic taken up in the church in quite a clumsy way. Sometimes there's been helpful things said. Other times there's just been uh, a level of restriction put on things that has been unhelpful or just not talked about at all. And I think our clumsiness is due to a variety of things, Right? clumsy around this topic. I, I don't have to really get your attention onto what we're talking about today because as soon as you say sex in a room, everyone peeks up, right? We're clumsy around this topic, I think because, at least in one part, because of scandal in the church, right? Um, it's not just been sin out there, it's been sin in here, but it's also been sin among leaders in the church. And so we're clumsy in talking about it because we ourselves have committed the very sins we're telling you not to commit. We're also clumsy in talking about it because of a sense of legalism, kind of a, a puritanical prudeness, right, that can happen in the church as though we're just trying to have a head in the sand and pretend that these impulses and desires aren't as strong as we know that they are and we can just sort of pretend they're not there and maybe they'll go away or we don't have to have conversations we don't want to have. A puritanical prudeness makes us clumsy. I think also something that makes us a bit clumsy around this conversation is kind of a hyper-spirituality where if we really loved God and we were really desirous for the things of God, then we would be concerned about higher things. And so we just need to kind of promote spiritual hunger and then we won't think about our impulses and desires or experiences in the world anymore. But here's the reality. For all the reasons of clumsiness, maybe that hits on some things, maybe there's more. But the reality is that sex is something that we've got to talk about. Something we have to talk about. We have to do so with a level of peace and precision and here's why. A variety of reasons we must talk about it. But off the top, we've got to talk about it in order to discern and, and engage with a world around us where sex and sexuality is so pervasive. If we're not having conversations about it as Christians under the word of God, then how are we going to engage in a world that's having all kinds of conversations that are without restrictions and are just sort of out there at liberty? So we've got to talk about it, at least for that reason, to engage in the world. We've got to talk about it because brokenness and confusion aren't just things that the world is experiencing around sex and sexuality, but brokenness and confusion are things that we're experiencing around the sex and sexuality. It's not just things out there, it's in here. We've gotta talk about it also, tragically, because of not just sins that we've committed, but because of sins that have been committed against us for some in the room. That you've been sinned against in these ways. You've been abused, you've been assaulted, and there's things to to now unearth and figure out where do we find the healing power in the presence of God in the, midst of, in the midst of this. We've got to talk about it because so much of the way that our imagination is shaped around sex and sexuality is more due to Hollywood and a porn culture than by the word of God. So the images that roll through our minds or the scenes that roll through our minds or the experiences that we're kind of sometimes curious about or want to pursue aren't because of a genuine love for another person, but because of something we've seen on a screen. We've gotta talk about it. 
We've also got to talk about it, maybe most importantly of all those reasons, I think those are important reasons, we've got to talk about sex and sexuality, where it belongs and what God is calling us to, because the Bible talks about it, right? So this is what, what we're doing in 1 Corinthians. We're just moving line by line, section by section, chapter by chapter through this book, and this is just the next passage. So we're not just cherry picking this. Hey, let's talk. This is, the Bible talks about it. And when God's word speaks, you gotta know this, right? We're not talking about this today because it's my favorite topic in the room. We're talking about this today because God has something he wants to offer you of encouragement. God has something he wants to offer you of healing. God has something he wants to offer you of instruction and warning and correction. He knows where you are today. He knows what's rolling through your mind today. He knows what's rolling around in your chest and your desires today. He knows your story. He knows your temptations. He knows your weakness. He knows our sexual fragility. And he's trying to speak to us in order to form us as his people that we might flourish in the world as his disciples, not oppressed in the world because we're his disciples. The kingdom of Jesus brings, brings flourishing and not oppression. So off the top, I wanna to say this today. When it comes to the topic of sex, sexuality, God is not anti-sex. He's not anti-sex. He's also not anti-pleasure. Both sex and pleasure are God's idea. They're God's design. And there's no one more pro-sex than God. However, I do wanna tell you what God is opposed to. What God is opposed to is abuse. He's opposed to it. Strongly opposed to it. Let's call it what it is, evil and wicked. He's opposed to abuse. He's opposed to manipulation, especially in this context, sexual manipulation. And he's also opposed to objectification. So he's not opposed to pleasure or sex, but he is opposed to abuse, manipulation, and objectification. This is why this conversation is important. You see it. And so um, I know that you guys are intellectual savants and you read Tolstoy a lot, but here's something Tolstoy had to say, and I think he gets it. Man survives earthquakes, epidemics, the horrors of disease, and all agonies of the soul. But for all time, his most tormenting tragedy has been, is, and it will be the tragedy of the bedroom. Our culture is making every attempt to remove any and all restrictions around sex, believing that the more freedoms we, ha we have, the more liberties we have, the less restrictions that we'll have more pleasure and more fulfillment, and that will actually solve, as Tolstoy would say, the tragedy of the bedroom. If you just have less restrictions, if you have more freedoms. And so at the same time, we're living in a cultural moment where we're speaking out of both sides of our mouth. On the one hand, we're told sex is everything. It's the highest pleasure. It's the greatest experience. If you want satisfaction, pursue your desires. We're told sex is everything. Out of the other side of our mouth, we're told sex is nothing. It's casual, it's cavalier, and it's meaningless. Those both are coming at us from both directions, and it's led, but it hasn't led us to have more flourishing or even better sex. Behind all the glamour of unhindered, unrestricted sex are the lives of everyday people that are telling a different story. People like you and me, our own stories. Stories of confusion around this. Stories of shame, emotional pain, assault, unsatisfying sex, the list could go on. 
We're in a cultural moment where we can't even answer the basic questions of what is a man or what is a woman. So would it be, would it be any stretch to go, oh, well, of course we're confused. <laughs> if we can't answer the basic questions of what is a man or a woman, then of course we're confused around sex. And so while the specifics of the Corinthian problems are, are different than ours in some ways, the parallels between their world and ours are this. They and we live in a sexually warped, broken, and confused world. And if Jesus is a savior at all, he has to save us in these places, amen? <laughs> if Jesus is a savior at all, he has to save us in these most vulnerable places, these places of deepest confusion and deepest shame. And the good news for us is that he does. That's why he speaks to it. He hasn't left us to our own imaginations or our own, our own devices. He actually speaks to us in these places. And so in our passage today, Paul's gonna present this vision of sexuality this vision of marriage and of singleness, and he does so in a way that was revolutionary then for the Corinthians in their moment, but it's also what we're gonna read today is revolutionary for us in our moment. And so let me just let the cat out of the bag, the direction, the claim of our text is that sex, marriage, and singleness are gifts from God. That's the proposition of, of the text today. Sex, marriage, and singleness are gifts from God to us, both sex and singleness have advantages distinctly, challenges distinctly, and responsibilities distinctly. Marriage and singleness have their distinct advantages, challenges, and responsibilities. That's the proposition of the passage. Let me kind of give you the roadmap of how we're going to work through it, and then we'll get to work. Sound good? We all still together today? You don't want to punt? All right, let's do it. So here's the structure. First, we're going to talk about stewarding the gift of sex within marriage. Secondly, stewarding the gift of singleness. And then finally, how can we can steward both of these within the church? So to jump into it and give some context and perspective for their world, the world that Paul was writing in as this passage opens to us. In Corinth, there were two prevailing views, two prevailing visions of sex and sexuality. There was the free sex view and the anti-sex view. So the free sex view is as it sounds, sex without restrictions. It was treated as a bodily desire. When you're hungry, you eat. When you're thirsty, you drink. When you have impulses and desires sexually, you act them out. You carry them out, you find a partner, and you do these things. The, the, other, the other view, the anti-sex view, was a view of complete abstinence. So where the free sex view was pervasive in their culture with temple prostitution that you guys talked about last week in chapter six, some of those Christians were coming into the church having, been, um, having sinned in those ways, having that baggage on them, trying to find out what a discipleship to Jesus looks like, and they would swing the pendulum to an anti-sex view, which is sex is sinful, sex is unholy. It should be avoided at all costs, even within the context of marriage. So to be truly mature in this other view, to be truly godly, to be truly spiritual, you must abstain from having sex even in marriage. Now here's what was interesting about these two views and these two groups. The two views, free sex and anti-sex, were largely made up of the wrong people. So in the free sex camp, the large, the, the large majority of people who held that view were single people, right? Uh, the people who were categorically, in terms of the church, to be not having sex. But the people who were in the anti-sex camp were largely married people. The right people in the category of enjoying intimacy with a spouse 
were opposed to it. So the, the views were what they were, but the camps, the people who held the views, were absolutely reversed. All the wrong people were having sex, and all the right people were having none. And so one final introductory remark as we get into the passage is that all of what Paul's about to say in chapter 7 flows from the umbrella. It flows from the framework of where he ended in chapter 6. He picks up right where he left off in chapter 6, the umbrella and the framework of how we ought to understand our bodies. So pick up with me in 619, and then we'll move into our passage. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So he's going to make this massive claim because of that. Because, Christian, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The presence of the living God is inside of you. You are a temple. You are a dwelling place for God himself. What's the conclusion of the matter? Well, then you're not your own. You're not your own. You don't get to sort of decide for yourself, expressed individualism, particularly with sexuality. You belong to God. Well, how is that true? Because verse 20, you were bought with a price. The very precious blood of Jesus, his body broken for you. You are bought with a price. You're not your own. You're in dwelling place for God himself by the Holy Spirit. So what's the conclusion of that matter? The ending there is so glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're probably even hearing me before I even jump into the meat of the structure of the sermon you guys are crazy people, right? Because I know that what we're saying, even by reading this passage, you are not your own, sounds crazy. And I would just say, if you're not a Christian, we do see these issues differently. We totally see these issues differently. What we're sounding today might sound strange to you, but here's what I'm really happy about. I'm glad that you're here because there might not be a clearer passage in Scripture on a vision for sex, marriage, and singleness than the one we're looking at today. And if you don't believe these things, you at least hear what God has to say about it and what he means for flourishing in the world, right? So I'm really glad that you're here. Let's jump into the first, stewarding the gift, stewarding the gift of sex within marriage. Pick up with me in 7 verse 1. So Paul says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and here he quotes what they wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So Paul's responding, the whole letter of Paul to the church at Corinth is a response letter to a letter they had written to him. And so he's responding to a question that they had written. When he says, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, he's not asserting something. He's not saying that. He's responding to something they said to him. So here's what's interesting about the views of the free sex and the anti-sex camps. Chapter 6 largely dealt with the free sex camp. He now opens chapter 7 to deal, as he's answering this question, with that other view, the anti-sex. So pick up with me here in verse 2. So he responds by saying, But because of, sexual, because of the temptation to sexual immorality outside of God's design, right? Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And so when Paul says here that each man should have his own wife, it doesn't mean that every man needs to go out and find a wife for himself. We know this because if you keep reading in chapter 7, he's going to talk about the gift of singleness at length in chapter 7. He's going to even convince us to not be married, right? But Paul's specifically addressing married men and married women when he says this. So the idea of having a spouse isn't meaning, hey, go get yourself a spouse. Rather, he's speaking about the exclusivity of sexual intimacy in the context of marriage. Wives with husbands only. Husbands with their wives only. 
And so even as we jump into the, to the bulk here, verses 3 to, three to uh, 5, it's interesting to me that as we've been talking about the church at Corinth, a place that was so rampant with sexual promiscuity, a place that was so riddled with sexual immorality, if there was ever a letter written to a church that would be, hey guys, just ease up a little bit on this stuff, you would think it would be a letter to this church, a prudish letter. Scale things back a bit, guys. But what Paul's going to say is actually intensely sex positive. He's going to give a, a largely um, positive vision of sex. And that he's going to say that actually the best defense, the best defense against sexual immorality is for all married people to have sex with their own husband or their own wife. So what we're about to read is Paul's not just encouraging sex with your spouse. He's actually going to go so far, biblically, underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not just encouragement, but he's going to command it. He's going to command it. So pick up with me in verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So don't deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you might devote yourself to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So here's the passage, particularly to married couples and the role of sex within it. And I want to make four quick observations about what Paul is saying here. And the first is this. The posture in marriage around sex that God commands, that God commands. And one caveat as I open up this, this observation is that verses 3 to 4, please lean in with me here. Verses 3 to 4 have been some of the most misused, misunderstood verses in the Bible around sex. I've heard personal stories around this. I've heard stories just sort of out there within churches of men who have thrown verses three to four that you don't have authority over your own body, but I do. Men have thrown these verses in their wives' face, demanding sex from them. A kind of biblical manipulation to coerce their wife into more sex. As though sex with their husband would be an, a matter of obedience to God. Husbands in the room, let me be very clear, just to throw this here. If you wag these verses in front of your wife as if to demand something from her, you are guilty of biblical manipulation. God warns violently against that. If you wag these verses in front of your spouse's face as if to demand something from them, you're not just guilty of manipulating scripture, you're guilty of entirely mishearing and bypassing the heart of what God's trying to say. Paul's emphasis on here is not to ever demand something from a spouse. Instead, the whole emphasis here is what you owe your spouse. It's not what your spouse owes you. It's instead how you're to self-give and what you owe them. What this passage is doing is holding up a profound mutuality between husband and wife. He doesn't say one thing to husbands that he doesn't also say to wives and vice versa. So it's almost as if Paul... I was trying to get all the husbands in the room and everyone else in the room that maybe even is still single that's male to hear him when he says this, right? But he does it in the hearing of the women. He does it in the hearing of the wives. It's as if he says, hey, husbands, listen. Your body doesn't belong to you. Your body doesn't belong to you. You don't have authority over your body. She does. 
And you have a responsibility to care for her and to cultivate intimacy in every way, not just this way. And then it's as if after he says that, he, get, he says, hey, ladies, all the wives in the room, I want you to hear me. And I want you to do so in the hearing of the men. And what he just said to the men, he says exactly the same to the women. Listen, your body belongs to your husband. You don't have authority over it. He does. You have a responsibility to care for him and to cultivate intimacy in every imaginable way. He says the exact same thing, a beautiful mutuality. So the posture that God is commanding in marriage is one of physical generosity. He's commanding self-sacrifice, putting the needs of your spouse above your own. Like that's what scripture's teaching here. Not just looking out for your own interests and that your spouse would meet them, but putting the interests of your spouse above your own. That's covenant. That's why marriage is sacred. That pictures Jesus in the church. So rather than wagging this verse at your spouse to ask them to give you something more of what you want, instead what this verse is calling you out to is what can I do? Not what you owe me, but what I owe you. What can I do to greater facilitate intimacy relationally? What can I do to greater facilitate intimacy emotionally and sexually? How can I serve your needs? Now, I should also say here as the last sort of caveat before jumping into the second observation is that this instruction is, was intended to go to couples where both spouses feel sexually safe, right? This is not a word that's going out to spouses where one is oppressing the other or even subjugating or abusing the other and that the other would just be complicit in that. This, to be very clear, Consent matters in marriage also. So, so if you're here, and I know this is a bit awkward, but I just, it's appropriate to say, if there's abuse happening in your marriage, if you feel put under an iron fist in these ways, please speak up. Don't suffer in silence. We will do whatever we can. We will drop anything to help you, to help your marriage, to help you be safe, do not suffer in silence. The scriptures don't speak that way, and we as ministers of the gospel do not wanna speak in that way either. We invite you to speak up. The second observation, the second observation is that what Paul is saying here is countercultural. It was then and it is now. So this would have been absolutely shocking in their world where women largely had no rights, and especially sexually. So, so Christianity, at every point, dignifies women, at, I mean, more than any other worldview or world religion, and it does so here again. So for women to hear that they had authority over their husband's body, like when the passage read, wives, you don't have authority of your own body, but the husband does, in our moment and in theirs, they're going, yeah, I've heard that before, right? Patriarchy, misogyny, toxic masculinity. But for them also to hear, and also wives, the same goes to you. You have authority over his body. You have an authoritative say on him being kept for you alone. It was countercultural then and it is today for different reasons, though. Sex in our moment is the statements are this it's my right, right? Sex is my right. It's my body. It's my pleasure. It's about what I want and how I want to go about it. But here's what Paul is saying. If you're a Christian, 
the mantras of my rights, my body, my pleasure, my wants. Paul is saying, if you remember back up in chapter six, uh, chapter six, verse 19, not anymore. The mantras of the world don't go with the mantras of discipleship. Your body is not your own. You're called to seek not your own sexual pleasures, not your own sexual wants or desires, but you're called to seek the safety, the intimacy, and the desires of your spouse alone. That's what you're called to seek. Here's the third observation. Sex and marriage should be regular, not intermittent, according to this passage. It should be regular and not intermittent. Now, in case you're about to go, wow, he's gonna define regular. I might, I might not be the brightest guy in the room, but I'm not dumb, right? I'm not gonna define regular and I'm not gonna define intermittent. The reason is, is because that's gonna be different for nearly every couple for various reasons. But here's the idea. What Paul is suggesting is that we should seek to serve and to understand our spouses and define those terms in ways that actually blesses and flourishes our marriage so that you should actually hear from one another and then agree together. But I want you to notice on this point, how many caveats, it's striking, how many caveats Paul puts on the only acceptable time not to engage in regular sexual activity in marriage. He puts so many caveats around it as if to say, it should be so regular that I've got to put some parameters. So look at verse five again with me. He says, don't deprive one another. Let's just start there. Don't deprive one another except perhaps maybe by agreement, and if then, by a limited time, so that you might devote yourself to prayer, not just so you're not doing that, but so that you're doing something else of important value. But then, he says, come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. We're gonna hit that next line in a moment. But the point Paul is making is that sex is meant to be a regular feature in marriage. One pastor and scholar said it so well that I, I couldn't say it better myself, so I'm just gonna quote him here. Vaughn Roberts, while the Bible is against sex without, uh, sorry, well, the Bible is against sex without marriage or sex outside of marriage, it's also against marriage without sex, assuming, assuming that it's physically possible that both partners are able to participate. And so if you're married and you would describe your sex life as far less regular and far more intermittent, what this passage is suggesting is an invitation, an invitation to process with your spouse and do so in an understanding way. Not making your demands on them, but figuring out what does, what does greater intimacy look like in our marriage? Not just here, but everywhere. That, that's what this is suggesting. Because I would, I would venture to guess where there's irregular sex, it's not because you have a sex problem, it's because you have a relationship problem, right? So the invitation is process with your spouse in an understanding way. And if your marriage needs help, that's what we're here for. The pastors and leaders of this church wanna throw down and do whatever we can to see flourishing marriages across, across this community. Marriage is and forever will be until Jesus returns a picture of his union with the church. Where marriages flourish, so does gospel witness. Can you please hear that? Where marriages flourish, so does a testimony of Jesus and his love for the world. So we, work, we are committed. We, we want to. Wherever you're struggling, let us know we want to help. Here's the next observation, the final for this point. The reason he's so serious here. Guys, please lean in. This is where this challenged me the most in my own study. 
The reason he's so serious about the role of sex within marriage is because it's spiritual warfare. <laughs> this shocked me. Notice again that I'm not stretching. This is in the text. Read verse five. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again. Why? So that Satan, now warfare language, may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Don't miss the way he's connecting these two things together, prayer and sex. Both are practices that are meant to be cultivated for health and marriage, and both are things that Satan wants to attack. Both are places that Satan wants to attack. I don't have to convince you of this. Study after study confirms that sex is everywhere in our culture, except in marriages. It's everywhere. You can't watch a show. You can't watch a commercial. You can't go through your grocery store checkout line. You can't listen to any radio commercials. ED abounds, right? Like it's, sex is everywhere in our culture, except within marriages. But it's also true that for many Christian couples, Prayer is cultivated everywhere except together. Isn't that interesting? So you might be able to say about prayer, yeah, prayer is something that we do separately. Like we kind of just know both of us pray, but we don't really do that together. Most Christian couples would say that. We, we both pray, we just don't do that together. You know what's interesting? I can tell you that sexual desires experience the same way. We do that separately but rarely we do that together. And so I would venture to guess, in light of this conversation on spiritual warfare, that where sex is absent in marriage, so is a regular practice of prayer. Where sex is absent, so is a regular practice of prayer. He's connecting these two things. But I would also say that where prayer is present, there's also a greater desire to understand and to serve your spouse in every way. And even where sexual intimacy isn't possible for a variety of reasons, there wouldn't be begrudging covenant. Where prayer is present and sex is not possible, there's a greater desire to love and to protect and to have deeper covenant. He's connecting these two things on purpose. There may be no place, you just think about prayer for a second, there may be no other place than sexual intimacy where we're as vulnerable before another person we trust Prayer would be the only other place I can think of. It's intensely vulnerable because prayer is the place where you bear out your weaknesses, you bear out your fears, you bear out your failures and, a desi and your desires before the living God. Like you're, you're bearing out, I don't got it. And to do that in front of a spouse is, is really intimidating. But imagine with me for a second. <laughs> I realize that for some of you to say like, and typically in a given marriage, one spouse feels more comfortable in prayer than the other typical, and one spouse feels more comfortable to pray out loud than the other, that's typical. But even when you go, yeah, I'm just not good at prayer, it's a stumbling prayer, I want you to imagine with me how powerful it would be if you would even offer your stumbling prayer. Can you imagine the kind of love and knittedness that you would feel for the other person in those moments? I promise you, if you think you're bad at prayer and you're not good at praying out loud, whatever you got is beautiful to your spouse. It's beautiful. You're bearing out in that moment weakness. You're bearing out in that moment a lack of understanding and frailty and you need God's help. There is nothing that attaches you to another person that you love like those things. 
That's not resistance stuff. That's union stuff. And so, listen, it shouldn't shock us, right? Like, think about this. It shouldn't shock us that two of the most challenged areas in our life, challenge one, prayerful irregularity, challenge two, sexual brokenness, it shouldn't challenge us that these are also the two greatest targets of the enemy to keep us from God's best. Prayer and sex, gifts from God for the soul's health, particularly in the context of marriage. Of course, Satan would attack these things to keep us from God's best. Another quote I couldn't say any better myself. If prayer is fundamental to Christian marriage, and according to this passage, it is, then Satan will, of course, do his worst to undermine it. Equally, if true giving to each other in sexual intercourse is the essence of a union where God has joined two individuals together, then Satan will also do his worst in inhibiting, spoiling, and robbing it of its purity and its fulfilling potential. Satan is always active in a Christian marriage to quench shared prayer and to reduce the joys of sex to his own debased level. So Satan knows how special prayer and sex are. But you gotta know his, his attacks aren't about prayer and sex. His attacks are never about the attack itself. His attacks are always about the health of our souls. And so if Satan knows that these are gateways to your soul's health, if he knows that sex and prayer are important, you and me should take notice too. You and me should take notice too. Sex within marriage, like marriage itself, if it's gonna be stewarded, we're talking about stewarding the gift of sex within marriage. It's gotta be cared for. You can't be flipping about it. It's gotta be cultivated. You can't just sort of give up and hope you just sort of magically drift back together. It works properly only when both partners yield to each other, prefer the other above themselves and look to serve in ways, every way that they can. And, and, and Paul's writing this for the health and the flourishing of godly marriages, right? The second thing he speaks to, and I know we're, we're running a bit long today, is the gift of singleness. Some of you might be thinking, hey, I thought you said in the beginning this was a sermon and a passage about marriage and singleness. And you're thinking, you've only talked about marriage and sex within marriage, and you'd be right to know. But to this point, all the work we've done around sex and marriage, he might be left with the question, if sex is really that significant, if it's really that big of a deal, then what about everyone in the room that's single? What about us? Are we supposed to be destined to miss out on one of the most beautiful, one of the most essential aspects of life? Are we supposed to just miss out on one of the biggest gifts that God offers? And my answer to those questions, according to this passage, and God's heart is far from it, far from it. Singleness is also named as a gift. Pick up with me in verse six. Paul says, now as a concession, not as a command. What's interesting is he says like an allowance, not a command, but it's in holy literature by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So now what he says, he was his own thought. The Holy Spirit just adopted and is like, no, this is my thought. So this is an authoritative word to all of us. Verse seven, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift, speaking of marriage and singleness, own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And to the unmarried and to the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. It's actually good. For if they cannot exercise self-control, then they should marry. For it's better to marry than burn with passion. Don't miss out what's obvious if you're single here today. Don't miss out what's obvious in this text. The person responsible for writing 
some of the most breathtaking and beautiful stuff that we have on marriage and sex in Scripture was a single man. It's the Apostle Paul. In fact, Paul is going to spend a great deal of the rest of this chapter, as I named earlier, to actually try to convince single people to remain single. Like he's saying, I wish you were as I am. It's even better. And why is that? Look at again what he says in verse 7. But each has their own gift from God. So, so marriage should never be seen as, or singleness rather, should never be seen as this season of life of waiting until you get the true gift. Where you are now is a gift. Wherever you are in life, when Christ comes to it, is a gift because he brings his grace to every stage of life. So here's what Paul's doing. Instead of falling into the trap on the one hand, like our culture does, of elevating marriage and devaluing singleness, or on the other hand, elevating singleness and devaluing marriage, what he does here is he equally lifts up both before our eyes as gifts from God. And you may be thinking, well, I don't like this gift if you're single, right? Like, I actually hate this gift. Can I give this gift back? You know, thinking about Christmas. Like, why did you get me those socks? You can have these socks back. I don't like this gift. I think the reason that most of us, when we're single, hate the gift of singleness is because we've fallen into the cultural wind of the moment that deifies marriage and family. And what I would want to say is don't confuse gifts with God. Marriage is a bad God. Marriage is a good gift, but it's a bad God. What happens if you look at marriage as deified, as the end, and then you look around at the married people in the room and they go, yeah, but I still got problems. Marriage is a good gift. It's a bad God. Sex is a wonderful gift. It's an awful God. And many of us know it's an awful God because we've sought to serve it and we've been abused and we've been confused and we got shame on the back end. It's a good gift. It's a bad God. It's meant to flourish in the place God gave it to, design, to, to, to be, to rest. And so I think the reason that most of us would want to exchange it is we don't see it as a gift. So why does Paul call it a gift? Well, later in this chapter, he puts his cards on the table and he talks about the return of Jesus is our hope. <laughs> the return of Jesus is our hope, not marriage, not a family, not sex, not intimate. Like Jesus is our hope. And all of those things, marriage, sex, and family, they actually point to him. Those things are gifts that point to the greater gift in union with him. So he's saying, first of all, you've misplaced your hope if you don't see it as a gift. And the other thing he's going to say is that singleness uniquely is wired to form you around an undivided devotion to Jesus. It might sound trite to say that, but here's what I'm trying to drive at. Psalm 16 says that, the, that in the fullness of his presence, in the fullness of God's presence, sorry, in, in his presence is the fullness of joy, Psalm 1611. And it also goes on to say, and at his right hand are pleasures forever. What if we really believe that? We often go Psalm 1611, that's good for a coffee mug, not for my life. But what if we actually, singleness uniquely attaches you to an undivided devotion to Jesus. It hitches you to the only relationship that actually lasts. And so, some of you have come to love your singleness and you're trying to leverage it and steward it as a blessing to the church, as a blessing to your city, as a blessing to God. 
But maybe there comes along the time you're like, I'm just, I'm tired of the gift of singleness. <laughs> I would say that's okay. Like you can name that to God and ask him to provide a spouse. It's not a sin to exchange the gift of singleness for the gift of marriage. Both are gifts and we trust God to be the wise giver. Again, one more quote if you'll humor me. Marriage is designed to show off Christ's love and devotion to the church. But singleness is designed to show off Christ, uh, the church's love and devotion to Christ. Singleness is uniquely designed to showcase the sufficiency and the superiority of God. And so here's the bottom line that I love Paul weaving marriage and singleness together in the same thought. He's trying to show us that marriage is not the goal of our lives, but it's a gift. Sex and marriage are gifts, they're not ultimate, and they're not eternal. He's also showing us that singleness isn't weird. And there's nothing wrong with you if you find yourself single. Jesus and Paul were both single. And I don't think anyone in here would be prepared to call them weird. Intensely satisfied men as they stewarded their life and their singleness for the glory of God. And so over and over again, here's what we're coming to. The Bible's trying to point to us and show us God gives gifts, but even the gifts aren't ultimate. They point to him. God gives gifts, but the gifts don't last. Relationship with him does. God gives gifts, but nothing can satisfy like Jesus. Both marriage and singleness are gifts that are pointing to Jesus. And sex within marriage is a gift to be stewarded for the flourishing of both marriage for the glory of God and for the good of your city and the world. So as we move to the table today, just a smooth transition from God's word to the table, you realize that in Jesus, as you come to this communion table today, if you're here and you're single, you gotta hear this. In Christ, no one is truly single. You're in Christ. No one is truly single. There's a communion you're invited to at this table. And also what's true is for those of you who are married today, this table, this communion, points to a greater communion, a greater union, where in the new heavens and new earth, no one will be truly married anymore. You'll be hitched to Jesus. So this table gives life to the single person and it gives a frame of reference to the married person. No one's truly single. In the new heavens and new earth, no one's truly married. But both have been given as gifts to be stewarded. And this table, this meal, this bread, this cup, it fuels you in a life to do just that. So this bread, Jesus lifts up and he says, this is my body. This is my body broken for you. He says, take and eat. The implication here is we wanna glorify God with our own bodies because his body was broken for us. He takes the cup and he raises it. He says, this is my blood poured out for you in the new covenant. And this is for the forgiveness of your sins. I know that you might hear this today, aware of your sins. But Jesus says this cup is about the forgiveness of your sins. And so he says, don't just look at it. I want you to take and drink. I want you to take and let it wash all the way down. So follower of Jesus, if you're here today, come to these tables and receive fresh grace from your Lord. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I'd ask that you abstain from this meal. What we're saying is the Jesus of this book is our Lord. And if that's not yet true for you, the invitation would be come to Jesus before you eat with Jesus. We'd love to talk with you about what it is to be a Christian. But followers of Jesus, as you're ready, come to these tables and receive.